every single marketer and every single brand should be attempting to earn a disproportionate share of conversation. If you work for an organization where they say, bring us a chart that goes up and to the right, you have a challenge. Half the money I spend on advertising is wasted. The trouble is, I don't know which half. I am here to inspire you, to excite you, to motivate you, to transform you, to energize you. Hello, and welcome to Demand Gen Visionaries. This episode features an interview with Kevin Sellers, CMO at Ping Identity. Ping Identity helps you protect your users and every digital interaction they have while making experiences frictionless. Kevin is a modern marketer with an extensive digital expertise to drive growth and relevance for world-class brands. On this episode, Kevin shares his insights into prioritizing the digital customer experience, maintaining a singular focus to maximize your productivity and the power of the accurate brand ambassador. But before we get into it, here's a brief word from our sponsor. Demand Gen Visionaries is brought to you by Qualified. Qualified is the pipeline generation platform for revenue teams that use Salesforce you can intelligently grow your pipeline by understanding the signals of buying intent and having real-time conversations right on your website. You can learn more at qualified.com. So please enjoy this interview between Kevin Sellers and your host, Ian Faison. Welcome to Demand Gen Visionaries. I'm Ian Faison, CEO of Caspian Studios, and today I'm joined by a special guest. Kevin, how are you? I'm doing well. How are you? Excited to have you on the show, excited to chat about Ping Identity and all the cool stuff that y'all are doing. So let's get into it. What was your first job in demand? Good question. So I have a little bit of a different philosophy because I actually think all marketing services demand, right? We kind of parse marketing out. Oh, we have a brand person or we have somebody that does communications or something. But really all of those disciplines in the end are about building your business, about acquiring customers and ultimately, therefore, about generating demand. Now, I know your question is specifically around what was your first job really driving demand specifically? And it was probably my previous company. Prior to that, I was at Intel doing a lot of different roles in brand and in regional marketing and product marketing and comms and so forth, but none of them had a direct demand title. But in my previous role at a company called Abnet, where I was CMO, we, we definitely had a demand general. And then obviously here at Ping Identity, we spent a lot of time on that function. But I do want to make that pitch. All marketing is about customer acquisition and improving the business. So I think everything we do really ultimately is about improving the business outlook and, and generating demand for companies. I love it. It's like the thesis for our show there. And we didn't to, even I'll practice have... that. I wasn't even cued. So there you go. That's right. That's why we interview CMOs on Demand Gen Visionaries, because we're all demand people. Can you tell us a little bit about what it means to be CMO of Ping Identity? It's very, very stimulating and challenging because there's no prescriptive, perfect way to be a chief marketing officer. And for Ping Identity specifically, we're in a very important market of identity and access management. It's growing, a lot of money coming into the space. As the world's moved digital first, everyone needs to have secure identity to transact, to protect their, to have access to the right tools and applications, whether it's at work or whether it's through your normal day-to-day life, doing things digitally. So it's an important and growing part of what we kind of view as a mission critical or level zero T infrastructure investment. And so that is interesting because we're in the center of this shift to everything digital. And yet there's a lot of big competitors and money's coming into this space from the likes of Microsoft all the way down to startups and every flavor in between. So competition is fierce. 
There's too many players in the industry at, at this point. So there's a lot of consolidation that's both happening and will yet happen. And so we're kind of stuck in the middle of that. And so it's an opportunity to, hey, how do you help drive growth? But also, how do you help recognize what's going on in the market broadly to be sure you're positioning the company for its best path for success? So there's no shortage of both tactical and strategic ways to spend your time and energy, which is ultimately why I think we do these jobs. Let's get to our first segment, the trust tree. With the knowledge you've been given, you are now on the inside of what I like to call the circle of trust. What, I thought we were in the trust tree with in the nest, are we not? This is where you go and feel honest and trusted and share those deepest, darkest demand gen secrets, Kevin. What does your company Ping Identity do and who are your customers? Ping Identity is about securing the digital identities of all individuals, whether they're employees at a company or consumers engaging with and transacting with businesses digitally. Everyone needs to have secure identity and secure data in order to work and live and operate in a very digital first world. So we focus on balancing good experiences online that are also highly secure and built around securing the identity of the individual. And that really enables a blossoming of the digital economy that we now firmly live in. But our customers are enterprises of all shapes and sizes. Now, we don't typically go after or spend a lot of time on small business, but we're sort of commercial market and up and we have a, a specialty in large enterprise specifically. We service, you know, 12 out of the largest 14 banks in the United States and six out of the seven largest healthcare firms. And you, you can go on down the list, but we're very good at supporting and managing large enterprise. That's kind of our sweet spot. Yeah. And tell me like, who are the personas? What does your buying committee look like? Yeah. The buying committee is very interesting because for our business, we're actually shifting. We kind of have two major parts of our business. One is servicing the enterprise itself where they provide security for their employees to be able to access the networks and the applications and tools they need in their jobs. So the personas for that market are pretty straightforward. It's the IT practitioners, it's the CISO, in some cases, the CIO. But a fairly narrow buying group that has authority across most of the companies we engage. And so that motion of how you engage that audience and how you can drive demand generation is fairly, I would say, straightforward. The problem is we're not growing in that business because the likes of Microsoft and some others that are, uh, you know, Microsoft's playing a lot of the same game that they played years ago in the PC industry where they're consolidating functionality and their mm -hmm. Azure enterprise platform. And so what we're finding is, and we're shifting into the customer use case, which is consumers engaging digitally with businesses to transact, right? And they want to be able to be secure both in their identity as well as their data, but they also want low friction, easy, ease of use digitally. So we're spending a lot more energy there, but the personas we have to target and the buyers, it has completely changed the way we go to market because there's not a lot of consistency company to company. In some companies, it might be a CMO or it might be a line of business leader. It might be a chief digital officer. It might even be the CEO because now you're talking customers. You're talking about providing experience for customers that creates loyalty that gives you expansion opportunities and so forth. So there's a lot of sensitivity to C-suite when anything touches a customer directly. So what we've seen is our buying committee has grown. It's larger than it is on the employee side of our business. And it's more diverse and it's less consistent. So we've got some challenges around how do you target and go after the right personas given that there's more of them and it's not the same company to company. That's our big challenge. Yeah, and I think that that's what's so interesting about selling SaaS at this point in time, right? Is, well, the CIO 
if it's tech, it's going to look at it or the CTO or however they structure their organization. And then you have like shadow IT and all sorts of other things that go on. But at the end of the day, now, because IT is so closely related to the customer experience, you either have the CIO who thinks about their customer experience, especially if they're a tech platform, usually. And if you don't, then you need to be selling quote unquote around IT. And the thing that's so funny is back in the day when you sold around IT, you got in trouble. Whereas now IT is <laughs> like, please see all this stuff anyways. Of course, right. we're going to need to see this thing too. Well, and even in some cases, developers have become a much more potent, important voice within companies because they're developing internally some of the experiences and even some of the capabilities upon which the applications or the actual website itself might entail. And so that's another very diverse audience that we've typically not targeted in the past on the employee side that have an increasingly powerful voice in these decision makers. But again, the biggest challenge for a company like ours is the diversity now that we see in the buyer committee that is not existent in the previous sort of instantiation of what we did. So that's caused us, it, it hits your efficiency, right? And you got to guess right. And hopefully it's not a guess. Hopefully it's a, a data-driven decision, but you can't spread your dollars across everything because then you pretty much know how that'll end. How do you structure your organization to go after your key accounts? We're actually moving to a model where we find in our Europe and APAC regions, we're very, very, very aligned with our sales teams and how that's structured. And we're finding that to be a really important way of going to market. We're actually moving to a model that's very, very ABM-centric. And there's a lot of reasons why, for us, at this point, it's the right decision. I don't stand up here and say ABM is the end-all and be-all and that everyone should adopt it. But for where we are and all the things happening around us, we're actually going to move to a pretty field-centric ABM-centric, regional, sub-regional-centric model where we're going to be really focusing a little bit less of our time and energy on the top of funnel, which we've done, I think, a really good job of over the last couple of years, and really focusing on conversion and how can we help drive a better and higher conversion rate. So spending a little more of our dollar and emphasis on in-pipe opportunities and helping to lubricate and move through that pipeline at a more efficient pace, things that we previously really hadn't done in the past. We're going to kind of balance our investments across the funnel more than we have in the past. And again, a lot of the reasons we did what we did and what we're doing going forward are based on our own trajectory and the market we're in and the dynamics of our competition and all that. And so it wasn't that we necessarily did it blindly, but we're definitely pivoting this year to be much more field-centric and ABM-centric across all regions. You mentioned sort of your unique circumstances, but I think that there's definitely from the conversations we've had an extra focus on demand for 2023, for sure. Yep. So I'm curious, like, how does your demand gen strategy shift or change in that environment? I think for us, it's it's really leveraging the data, probably even more aggressively than we did in the past. We have enough data now to know where's the magic, what really works, what really drives interest and what really moves things forward in ways that other things can't. So we're going to be kind of heat-seeking missiles this year around focusing our investments towards the things that we know generate real impact. So in many ways, it'll be a little more tactical. So we've approached the market in the past where we've had an umbrella campaign, what was really, people call it awareness. 
yes, I think it's awareness, but it wasn't just, you know, ping talking about ping. We did it around specific use cases, but it nonetheless offered us as a kind of an awareness building umbrella campaign upon under which we would run some other tactical plays to really hit key personas and connect all of that tissue. We're going to be doing a lot less of that umbrella and being a lot more focused on the things that help drive and capture in-market demand. One of the things I've learned over the years too is if you think about the market you serve, you may have 100% of your market that you're going after. And at any point in time, again, in B2B where we operate, it's probably 5 to 10% of that given market might be in the market at that moment looking for a solution, actively seeking to engage a vendor in solving yep. a problem. The rest of it is something that will come later on, right? And so true demand generation tends to go after that other 90 plus percent, whereas demand capture is a very tactical. Again, given some decisions we had to make around our trajectory for 23, we're going to be a little more focused on the tactical demand capture aspect than I would normally do. And I think it'll hit our efficiency a bit, but ultimately it'll drive some short-term results. Again, not that I recommend it as the right approach, but it's the right one for us at the moment. We're going to be very focused on capturing in-market demand, and so that'll change a lot of our tactics and our, our messaging. We were talking to Jason from Metadata a handful of episodes ago about this idea of like him using like Google Ads as a wedge for building content where it's like, right. hey, we can't rank for all this stuff yet. So we got to pay for all the terms as we build sure. out our content and then eventually spend goes down and then the content continues to perform. I almost right. look at this as kind of like a reverse wedge, right? It's like, hey, you were doing all of those quote unquote brand gen activities and now you're just focusing on closing the deals. And hopefully, like you said, that 100% of people know who you are, know your value prop, know all that stuff. And then now focusing in on those 5% moments that when they're in those 5% moments that, that you can go win it. That makes sense to me. And yeah. I totally understand. Yeah. Saying, like, a little bit of a harvesting process, I think, right? And it's yeah. more of a temporary focus and approach. I think I'd mentioned before, we're a company that's now just been taken private after being public. And, you know, there's a lot of things happening in our space. And so this is just, again, really helping to drive as much near-term growth as we can as kind of our our process for this year. I love it. It's so helpful for our listeners who are in the same sort of scenario. So let's get into the playbook. This is what's great about sports. This is what the greatest thing about sports is. You play to win the game. Hello? You play to win the game. This is where you open up that playbook and talk about the tactics that help you win. What are your three channels or tactics that are your uncuttable budget items? And I'll add to this that clearly you're cutting a lot of budget items, but you also had some really successful campaigns in the past. So feel free, uncuttable budget items. What are they? Yeah. So I think for us, I, I would call these the three uncuttable. We're going to be laser focused on one go-to-market motion, which is around our customer use case, right? In the past, we've had multiple of those. So we're we're essentially folding a lot of that effort away and being incredibly targeted and focused. So uncuttable number one is that focus around the singular go-to-market motion that we're going to put in market. Rather than having multiple go-to-market kind of motions, we're going to be essentially singular focus, which will give us the ability to invest at the level we need to, but also keeps us simplified and focused on a single message or a single platform. I would call that un uncuttable, but it's really a, a strategy that's uncuttable. But the other two are really important. The second one is what I call our digital land, recognizing that businesses like ours three quarters or more, depending on what you read, of the customer journey is now done fully digitally and on the customer's timeline. We have yet to have, I think, what I would call an exceptional digital land or the ability to provide complete self-service from initial connection to actually fulfilling an order. 
And so we've been investing in that in 2023 is the year that we bring that to life fully so that we can serve that digital centered customer. We'll still have reps. We still have hand touch. We still have things that, you know, for large enterprise never go away, but we've invested heavily and we'll continue to do so to ensure that our digital journey is exceptional. So that's uncuttable number two. And then the, the next one would be our channel partners. So we've got a number of programs underway to help us scale our business through and with our channel partners. So those would be the three things there that I say are our must-haves for 2023. Awesome. I love it. Any tactical things that you're excited about doing or trying for next year? It's funny because we did some, I think, pretty innovative things in 21 and 22. We kind of took a different approach in the market that we're in because a lot of companies in cybersecurity, kind of the core messages, for lack of a better way to do this, I'll just say it is... You know, we're the trusted platform. You should trust us. Like, trust sure. us, trust us. We're great. Tends to be a little me-centered and it's a little bit generic in its messaging. So cybersecurity has never been known for, I think, great or breakthrough marketing. That's just kind of the nature of the beast. It's sensitive. It's security. It's all those things. And people tend to take a little bit of a safe approach. Of course, we don't spend as much as a Microsoft or some of the other competitors we deal with. So we went after and tried a different approach. We leveraged a pretty smart influencer that really helped create some breakthrough in our own storytelling. That was Terry Cruz. And Terry has been an amazing ambassador for us and has opened a lot of doors and had people, it engaged people in ways that just a traditional message, I think, would have just gone over their head. We took some very differentiated approaches to kind of break through and create some emotion and some character and some context to, to what it is we do and why it's important in a very engaging and storytelling fashion. I think for us, as we look ahead, and continuing to invest in the digital side of things, it's still a place where search matters, both organic and paid. It's a, Both are incredibly essential, and we've got work to do to shore that up. So we're going to be a little more, probably less sexy next year and a little more hyper-targeted and hyper-focused on fewer things, but exquisite execution and more personalization. So it's hyper-targeted, more personalized, very digital. So it feels like a kind of a basic cookbook for a lot of companies. But for us, it's about simplification and being very, very focused on those few areas that I just described. Yeah, so for the Terry Crews campaign, obviously he's super famous. Everyone, when they see his face, they know. So like, why him? I, I guess I yeah. kind of said why yeah. it's obvious, but, well, but why him? Well, it's really a great question if you think about it because influencer marketing is a thing. We all know it's a thing. It's almost like sponsorships. To me, influencer marketing and sponsorships can be very hit or very... How do you get something that's a hit versus a miss? A lot of it is finding someone who authentically can represent what it is you stand for and the message you're trying to get across to the market. So it's one thing to just hire a pretty face that's famous and has a lot of followers. I think that's where you get a lot of the misses when it comes to influencer marketing. But when you bring somebody in, whether it's an expert in the area, Terry's not necessarily an expert in security, but his strength of character embodies this notion of the strength and the robustness of our platform in terms of providing security for every identity, right? His unbridled optimism and energy are something that we highly, highly valued, right? That played right into the message we wanted to provide. So ultimately, we were trying to leverage an influencer that could help us tell the story of highly secure, very engaging, human, and emotion-based 
And all of that really came through. We looked at dozens of potential influencers and we just, everybody just universally said, man, this guy seems to be the right guy. And then as soon as we started engaging him, he has just been such a perfect fit for us. It was a glove right on the hand. It fits so perfectly. So I feel like we got a, a hit out of that one because I hear field people, salespeople all the time saying, you know, we got out of a call. They called us because they want to talk. They saw the Terry Crews stuff. They thought it was great. They, they, and they wanted to include us in the bid. You know, that's exactly the whole point of it. Marketing to me, is about renting a little bit of space in the minds of your target audience. And that's really, really hard to do, right? Yeah. So whatever tools you can do it, and Terry's helped us just rent a little bit more space than I think we could have on our own. So that's the whole point of it. You know, we talk about being remarkable on this show, which means you have to actually remark about it to someone else and say like, oh my gosh, I saw that thing. That was pretty cool. Yeah. That was pretty clever. Yeah. And this is like one of the tangible examples, right? It's like yeah. Apple uses celebrities in their marketing. Nike uses celebrities in their marketing and B2B companies. We just generally don't, right? It's just not something that we do. But like, you know, I was thinking about it before this episode. If someone stole my identity, I think Terry Crews would be one of the first people I'd call to go steal it back. <laughs> I know that's not how the platform works, but yeah. but I like the I like the <laughs> mental image. He's really embodied it well. And like I said, it's not that influencer marketing necessarily is the end all be all. It may not be for everybody. And I certainly don't, I mean, everybody's situation is unique, but it can be effective. And to make it effective, it's one of those things where the matching and the pairing and the authenticity of it all really plays it in. If you get it right, I mean, we've all seen examples where you're like, man, that pitch man or that pitch person for that brand is just so good, right? It just, it just works. And in other cases you've seen it, it's like, that seems kind of odd. That person seems like an odd choice. It's not just about fame. It's about the embodiment of the message that you're trying to get across. It reminds me of the PC and Mac commercials back in the day with Apple, yeah. where in in five seconds, you knew exactly what they were trying to say, right? Like sure. PC is old and weird and nerdy and Mac is like cool and young and hip, right? These type of things that these are sort of B2C yeah. lessons, right? Is how do you tell a story in five seconds or in 30 seconds? In B2B, we're so far away from that that we don't even try. Well, and I found it's very obvious to me that the buyers we engage, the B2B buyers we engage are increasingly expecting a B2C experience, which is why you know your website and your digital journey that you provide, the content you create and use to engage that audience, how you inform them and educate them and engage them across a range of experiences increasingly needs to be more thought of like a B2C exercise because that's the experience that they expect. And if you keep it at a very informal and almost lecture-like fashion in the way you engage them, I think that's a problem. So again, it's not about being schlocky or cute. You want to be authentic and real and it needs to provide value because of course they're in a journey. But if you think about it, B2B purchases are far more emotional than B2C purchases are. Other than a house or maybe an expensive car, like you and I decide from an ad that we want to go try some fast food restaurant because the ad looked good and we go there and we find out the food's not any good. Have we lost anything? Oh, and maybe we lost 10 bucks, but that's not a big thing, right? Yeah. B2B buyers, they get their decision wrong. They get fired. They lose their job. They lose their livelihood. And, and so the level of emotion that's a part of that process is far greater than we give credit for. And so engaging people with a little bit of emotion or, or not recognizing the seriousness of the decision that's at stake here, but still people, they're human beings, right? And so you, the way to engage them and just if they can laugh a little bit or they can certainly see the problems and challenges they have come to life in your content, 
that's, that is a great way to get people to engage and connect on an emotional level. And I think we have to not forget that. It's not just about the facts. You know, it's not just about claiming to have the best solution or spouting off features and capabilities. It really is about creating that connection and that trust. And I think that's where marketers like us that are in B2B, we do have to think more like B2C marketers because we need to be thinking about what kinds of experiences we're actually offering our customers. And you mentioned it. Why is Apple so great? Why is Nike so great? Why is Disney so great? They do that. I mean, across the spectrum of what they do and how they communicate, it's really, really good. Why can't we be the same way? Yeah, Tyler from Vidyard, when we had him on the show, he said, keep them yeah. laughing, keep them learning. And exactly. uh, I love that. We call it edutainment. <laughs> yeah, well, but it's important because in a world that's so full of pressure, I mean, none of us, we, we're all looking at the world of 2022 going, man, things are complicated out there. You've got political division, you've got wars, you've got inflation. There's so much bad news. From a cybersecurity perspective, I also think that if I just started using fear as my marketing tool, I'm kind of creating more anxiety and stress in my buyer. And I don't want to do that, right? What I want to do is help them see the solution and how the problems can be solved and turned into opportunities. And if I can get them to laugh a little bit, have a little emotion, feel good, yeah, you're just playing right onto the yeah. And what's cool about that campaign too, you said that your website traffic was up nearly a thousand percent. I mean, there's benefits to this stuff that I think is just so cool. I'm curious, how do you view your website? Yeah. I mean, it's kind of how a prospect first engages you. This is the first kind of real experience they get to have with you. How you view it is, it is the single most important piece of communication or the communication device that happens in a B2B world. So any buyer, and we've done the mapping, right? You can see a buyer that has come through. They've been on our website multiple times. They've downloaded multiple pieces of content or viewed multiple pieces of content. And it's now multiple buyers at one company doing that, right? So we view it as, look, it needs to be simple and easy to navigate. It needs to be a very, very consistent and simple experience. It needs to have the right level of information. You don't want to overwhelm them, but you can't just underwhelm them either. So there's that fine middle ground you got to find. So it's one of those things that we're, you never get it right. It's never right. It's just, is it better today than it was yesterday? Are we continuously improving? Are we finding the friction points and eliminating those friction points? It's all of that because you can see the buyer journey and we do some research and we find out what's working and what isn't working. So I think we've made good improvements, but I wouldn't call it done by any means. We still have a lot of work to do to get to where I want it to be. All right, let's get to our next segment, the dust up. Uh-oh, here comes trouble. You may have heard that there was a dust-up involving yours truly. And now we've got a wild scrum with fights breaking out all over the place. And it is getting really ugly as we've got punches and kicks. This is where we talk about healthy tension, whether that's with your board, your sales teams, your competitors, or anyone else. Have you had a memorable dust-up in your career, Kevin? Oh, man. If somebody says they haven't had a memorable dust-up, then... They're not being honest. Sure, I've had a memorable dust-up across probably every one of those constituents. I mean, I remember my very first board presentation when I started here as a CMO. I went in and presented. I'd been here about six or eight months, and we had really worked through. And I think we'd done a pretty good job of determining kind of where marketing was, where it needed to change, some of the things we wanted to implement, and got great reception from the leadership team and really felt like we were on a great path. Walk into a board meeting and... It just went south quick because there was a particular board member that just decided, oh, this is the new guy. So let me just see how, how well he can handle the skewering. And so he just went after oh, every data point I had. 
fact, at one point, just to give you a sense of how frustrating it was, I mean, I, in my head, I was having this conversation, but of course, externally, I was trying to be very poised and, you know, acknowledge the question and answer the best I could. He even said at one point, I showed some data about the buyer journey and some things that mattered and why we were recommending some changes to try to address the, the updated buyer journeys that we were seeing. And he's just like, well, where'd you get that data? And we shared the data. He's like, well, I don't believe it. You know, and you're like, oh I mean, at that point, you're like, I don't even know how to respond to that if you don't believe it. But the point is, that was a tough, tough meeting for me. And I remember walking out of it feeling pretty beat up. But then, you know, I came back again later, the next quarter, or maybe it was two quarters later, and we had another review and it went great. Right. It just went awesome. And they were super complimentary because we had even more progress to show. The relationship with the boards can be very important and investing time and finding a champion or two can also be super helpful, which I did. Turns out that this particular individual was not just somebody who picked on marketing. He liked to do that kind of thing with a lot of people. But anyway, that was a dust up that could have been really seriously negative to the career path that I had here, but it turned out not to be, thankfully. And yeah. There's other dust up. That was probably the most memorable and the most difficult one for me, at least initially. Prove the haters wrong, Kevin. That's your Definitely advice. a hater. Well, and I found out later this was a guy that didn't believe much in marketing. He felt like if you want to grow revenue, no you way. Hire more. Yeah. You hire, you hire more salespeople. You coming. don't need marketing. Yeah. You're like, I'm like, well, duh. You know, I mean, and I'm like, go for it. You know, when you look at a buyer journey and you look at all the touches in that journey and you realize how many things that the marketing team actually connects with that buyer, it's like, it's your own peril, man. Invest less in marketing. That's what I say. Go for it. I was talking to a sales leader the other day and I asked a question about marketing. They're like, yeah, I think that there's a real need for marketing now these days. <laughs> it was like, wow, way to plant your flag on that one. <laughs> way to go out on the limb there. Yep. It's like in Arrested Development when they go from a, a sell to a don't buy, like we made it to don't buy. <laughs> it's like, congrats marketing. We do deserve to have a job. Okay. Let's get to quick hits. These are quick questions and quick answers. Just like qualified helps companies generate pipeline faster, tap into your greatest asset, your website, to identify your most valuable visitors and instantly start sales conversations quick and easy. Just like these questions, go to qualified.com to learn more. Qualified is the best. Go to qualified.com to learn more. Kevin, are you ready? Hit me. Number one, what's a hidden talent or skill that's not on your resume? When I was young, I remember as a kid looking up in my classroom at these placards around the room that had the letter A in the alphabet mm. and below it the number one, and then B had the number two, and all the way down through Z, which was 26, right? And I remember just staring at that and getting bored. Well, to the point where now when I see letters, I see numbers and vice versa. So what I do, my family just cracks up because I do it all the time. I can look at a word. If I took the word Ian, which is your first name, simple three-letter word, I-A-N, right? Well, I is nine, A is one, N is 14. Well, I see that in my head immediately. So what I do now is I've taken it to the point where I add it up. And I can tell you, for example, Ian equals 24 because nine plus one plus 14 equals 24. But what I do now is if I look at a word, I can tell you that last digit, like in this case, Ian equals 24. I can tell you four. I can tell you in a tenth of a second. I can look at a word and I can say, oh, that word ends in two. So it's a That's stupid crazy. human trick. It's like I should have been on David Letterman years ago. It's this stupid human trick, but I can literally look at a word and go, oh, that's a three, or that's a five, or that's a 12, or that's a two. You know? And so uh, it's this weird thing now that I just, because I just see the numbers, I see the letters, and I can add them up. It takes a little longer to add up the full number, but I can get, because I've memorized patterns now, so I can just, get, I can get to the last digit almost instantly. So that a meaningless great. talent. It will never be on my resume, but it's a talent. 
There you go. I love it. That is that is truly a hidden hidden talent. I, yeah, a I don't useless know how you, hidden talent. Yeah. I don't know how you could make money on that. Maybe we could get you to like a carnival, perhaps. Like freak show. Game. Yeah. We'll work on something. Anywho, yeah. what's your favorite podcast book? TV show that you've been checking out recently? My favorite podcast is Malcolm Gladwell's Revisionist History. Love that t- podcast. I've read basically everything Malcolm's written. And it's a fascinating podcast because he talks about things that are overlooked or underappreciated in history and tells these amazing stories about things that you would never have heard of, but they're pretty amazing outcomes. So yeah, Revisionist History is my favorite podcast. So um, good. Yeah. Yeah. Do you have a favorite non-marketing hobby that maybe makes you a better marketer? cooking. I've taken up cooking, especially from COVID. And I don't know if it makes me a better marketer, but I follow different chefs online and I've tried lots of different dishes. And I found one that I follow. His name is Chef Billy Parisi. What I like about him is it comes back to marketing in the sense of he has such a simple way of teaching complex cooking techniques, but he breaks it down in ways that makes it easy and it makes it interesting to do. So I think he's as good a marketer and communicator as he is a chef, which is why I've gravitated to him versus a lot of other online chefs that you can follow, including Gordon Ramsay, who I've followed for a long time, and I think he's great. But this guy is he's the best teacher of cooking that I've seen, and again, it comes down to marketing. How do you communicate the things that you can do in ways that are compelling, engaging, and create an audience? This guy's done a great job of that. If you weren't in marketing, what do you think you'd be doing? I'd be teaching. What subject? I'd either be teaching at the college level or the high school level. In fact, when I retire from this job at some point, I'll probably go teach high school. I've always wanted to do that. I may or I may teach at the college level. But if I had taken this on as a profession earlier, I probably would have gone on to get a PhD and therefore would have ended up probably teaching at the college level. And subject would have been, it might have been marketing. Yeah, go teach was, marketing to freaking high school students. They need to know I, I this just, stuff. Look, I believe in it. Like You may have heard this, but one of my favorite quotes of all time as it relates to business was Peter Drucker many years ago, decades ago. But he said, and this is fascinating if you think about it, right? He said, in business, there are two and only two functions that matter, marketing and innovation. Marketing and innovation produce results. All the rest are costs. And kind of what he means by that, I know. And I think he means marketing in the capital M sense, not just the discipline of marketing, but really go to market. So sales and marketing. Yeah. Because sales and marketing together, we go to market and we generate revenue, right? Well, you got to have an innovation, a product, a service or something. And then you have to have the ability to communicate and therefore engage your customers. Everything else, do we have to have lawyers? Of course. Do we need finance people? Yes. Do we need HR? Of course. But those two functions drive a business forward. And so it's center to the success of all businesses. So I do think it's a bit of an underappreciated art and craft that I quite enjoy. Yeah. One of the best pieces of advice I ever received, I got out of the army and someone said was get as close to product as you can get or get as close to sales as you can get. Anything else in the middle is expendable and everything is supporting those two things. And like, I think... I mean, I think if you look at where marketing is now currently with self-serve and all this other stuff, marketing is driving revenue like they always have, but it is 100% attributable. And there's no ifs, ands, or buts about it anymore, right? It's like, hey, this is the number. This is what's happening. This is what's being hit. doesn't matter how good the salesperson is if you have that sort of stuff. So I think it's a really exciting time to be a marketer. And I I totally Totally agree. I totally totally agree. It's so unique and different. And digital has changed the rules of everything. And 
but it has made the job such an intellectually stimulating and challenging thing that that's why I get excited. It's not the same old thing now. I mean, we've had to change and learn and grow new skills all along the way. And I mean, I grew up at a fundamentals of it all are relatively the same, but the execution and the understanding you need and the strategies you have to deploy are very different. So that keeps it fresh, exciting. And I do agree with you. I think marketing now is as interesting as it's ever been. What advice would you give to a first-time CMO trying to figure out their demand strategy? Don't be afraid to ask for help. There's a lot of help out there. There's a lot of people that have gone through the motions you have. So one of the things I didn't do when I first became a CMO was reach out to peers as well as I should have. Like I do now much more than I did then. So I would say reach out for help. There's great networks available, CMO groups that can you can work with. So I would say do that first. But then specifically within the company, it's really understand there's probably two two things i would say going upward i would say make sure you're connected well both to the ceo and to the cfo and the company strategy overall make sure that what you do is really tightly connected around building out that strategy and demonstrating that that how you're going to take that to market in a way where they get a chance to see it so the more connected you are to that c level the more integral you will be to the company's direction and future and then working with it i'd say the same thing would be working with your product peers as well really understanding the uniqueness and the differentiation the service or product that you have to enable you to create that because at the end of the day if you're not differentiated or unique, you're just going to become noise. Well, for our listeners, you can go to pingidentity.com to learn more about your company and they help you protect users at every digital interaction while well, make an experience frictionless. Check out Ping Identity. Kevin, thanks again. We yeah. really uh, appreciate it and we'll talk soon. Thanks again. Appreciate it. The ManGen Visionaries is brought to you by our friends at Qualified.com conversational marketing company that's on a mission to transform the way b2b companies sell go to qualified.com to learn more